God, I, ugh, I farted again. This is terrible. <laughs> What'd you eat? I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to actually make a list so that way I can figure out what my body likes and doesn't like. Oh. Because. <laughs> You're so old. I am. I am. Meanwhile, I'm over here drinking vodka and Coke. <laughs> oh, <laughs> caffeine at this type of the, this time of the evening? I, it's, oh no, Diet Coke still has caffeine. Yeah. Wait, does it? It, ugh, no sugar. Ah! Yes, caffeine. It does have caffeine. Oh, oh no. Oh, no. Oh, God, woman. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hey, guys. Today, we're going to learn about a 19th century English naturalist slash floral painter and she wasn't a lesbian and she wasn't a lesbian this time she was not a lesbian and we're also going to learn about a 20th century ophthalmologist who pioneered cataract surgery okay cataract surgery that's pretty awesome yeah no she was a fucking beast there was no like she didn't stop you thought she was gonna stop she never stopped it was intense she like she was like a shark if she stopped moving forward she died Oh, my God. I just imagine them having her, like, you know, reaching, like, retirement age and having a party. And then, like, the next day, she's, like, snuck in the back of the office, still, like, taking patients. And I'd be like, didn't she retire yesterday? I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just here on my day off. Yeah. No, probably. Honestly. <laughs> she's, oh, man, you're going to be, like, it's it's going to be nonstop. But you're going to you're gonna love her. Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. Well, first, we are going... To 19th century England today. I'm okay with this. Yeah, that's what I got for you. You know, there's like a student who is shadowing at where I work right now because she's out of that tech college out here. Mm-hmm. And she had to do like an externship or an internship. I don't know what she's doing, but she's shadowing us and she's like learning and growing and going from there. But she's from the UK. And when somebody was like, you know, where's Dr. So-and-so? She's like, oh, she's in the loo, right? And then she had to like immediately like stop and like go oh sorry the bathroom she's in the bathroom and then I was like no I, I'm picking up what you're putting down that's fine I understand what you're saying and she's like oh you got you got my lingo now you're starting to learn it and I'm like no I mean like my best friend is obsessed with British UK shows hey I just <laughs> like their murder mysteries they no. know how to properly okay. kill someone there was like a two-year fucking marathon of red dwarf and I and, and the thing is the reason I'm pu- I'm pulling this up is because when I said that I was like no 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 she loves like British TV shows and she like binges them all the time and I used to live with her so I got nothing but British TV shows and when I was like oh yeah there was like a good chunk of time where it was nothing but Red Dwarf on twenty four seven and she was like Red Dwarf what's that <laughs> <laughs> and I was like uh how how old is she she's our age. Yeah, but I mean, Red Dwarf is still kind of old. Like, it's still a little weird for me to like it. I was like, what do you... No, the the sitcom with the space and the hologram and the... It's been on since the 80s. No? Okay. (laughs) I felt really weird. I was like, how the fuck does she not know? This thing has been on for decades. Did did you throw out anything else? Well, no, because we had to like we had to actually continue working, but like oh, okay. it was like I'll I'll explain later. And then I had no time to explain Red Dwarf, but like she looked at me, she was like, "What you mean, like, like a gnome, like a garden gnome?" And <gasps> I was like, Ugh. "What? No, no, like the mining ship, duh." I was I was so distraught. I was like, "You clear? What is going on? What is going on?" I should include a link on the show notes so everyone will know. I I was like, it was like she had slapped me in the face. I was very confused. Eh. Oh, well. No, we're uh, we're not going to the near future. Well, what's what's the year? 30, whatever. What's the year that it's set in? <sighs> not this century. Not this century. We're not going yeah. forward a century. We're going back two centuries. Yeah, so back to uh, 19th century <laughs> England. <laughs> That's right, Milana. I'm just, I'm a weirdo by American standards, and I'm a weirdo by British standards. I mean, that's just like a level up right there. I am so proud of you. All right, so the 
best way to compare this episode's artist with last episode's artist is in their autobiographies. I figure this will give you some context as to what we're going into. Mm. So last episode, it was painter Romaine Brooks, her unpublished book titled No Pleasant Memories. Oh, okay. Yeah, a little, little depressing I last mean, week. It was a little, little depressing. A little bit. A little bit. Um, but this week... I'm happy to say that we've got botanist and artist Marianne North with her book, Recollections of a Happy Life. Oh, are you kidding me? I No, I shit you not. I didn't plan it. <laughs> oh, man. That's that's pretty great. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I know. I read that and it was like, oh, this worked out so well. <laughs> we needed this in our life. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, tell me about her. All right, yeah, and the cool thing is that the the book, since it was published so long ago, it's up on public archives, so you can read it in its entirety for free online, which is pretty fun. And that shit will be up on the show notes. I got my summer reading list. Yeah, I really should start, like, a, a reading list, because it's fun. It's fun, like, different stuff we get to come across. Now, Milena, you could have just as easily done Marianne North. So just like you did in episode eight with Maria Sylvia Marian. Right. How do you say your name? Yeah. Um, the 17th century naturalist and scientific illustrator, for those of you that haven't listened. Get on that. Yeah. Just like uh, Maria. Marianne, she was a very self-determined woman. And for that reason, she really made her own way in the world of science and art. She was self-taught. And that unique perspective and how she created her work sets her apart from other science illustrators of the time. So unlike Maria, Marianne approached her work as a painter first and then a scientist. And that fine art approach is why I've called dibs on her today. Now, as has been the case with other 19th century artists we've covered, Marianne came from a wealthy family. Of course. They're rich. Of course. I mean, it helps. Um, She was born in 1830 in Hastings, England, uh, the oldest family to a very well-to-do political family. For years, her father was a member of parliament representing the area. And it's a small coastal, well, not so small. It's a coastal town on the southeast coast of England. Okay. Now, being a member of parliament, especially in Victorian era, it was a very impressive thing, which also very much put her family up in the upper classes. Mm -hmm. Growing up, Marianne spent her time between the family houses in Hastings and Norfolk and London. So, I mean... Terrible life when you have three homes to choose from. Oh, God. I know what to do. What to fucking do. And along with her her other two younger siblings, she had a sister, Catherine, and a brother, Charles. Also had a handful of servants and a governess growing up. And from Marianne's account, her childhood, you know, was one of supporting parents. Very much kind of like unlike last episode. Mm-hmm. Where our artist's mother was like, what? You're drawing? That is forbidden. Now, early on, just like... Every other artist I've covered, she showed an interest in the arts and singing as well. And both things her parents fostered. They even had her train under a vocalist and and they did encourage her focusing on her her painting, which was primarily of flowers. So given her family status and wealth, singing and painting are both very respectable hobbies for a Victorian lady, but by no means intended as a profession at all. You know, for the time, mid 1800s, upper class English expectations for women, they were pretty set. Women were expected to be confined to the domestic sphere, and they were seen as the physically weaker sex, but morally superior to men. Basically meant to look pretty and devote yourself to husband and the children. Later on in life, Marianne acknowledges that marriage turns women into, quote, a sort of upper servant. Ew. She was like, yeah, no, fuck that shit. You know, with her family reputation and money, like, she didn't have to focus on getting married at all. Marianne's family is cultured with a good many well-to-do family friends, which some of them I'll mention later, and they were also, quote, comfortably off. So comfortably off that come 1847, when Marianne is 17, they embark on a three-year tour of Europe, where along the way, Marianne got to expand on her interest in flower painting and botany and music. Comfortably off for my family growing up was having a working AC in the car. Like, never mind international trips. That's fair. Yeah, very, very different worlds that we come from. Um... Now, growing up, Marianne's most important person in her life was her father, Deputy Lieutenant and Justice of the Peace, Frederick North. Marianne says of him, quote, My one idol and friend of my life, and apart from him, I had little pleasure and no secrets. Huh. Yeah, so needless to say, her and her dad were close. Right. And when her mom, Janet, passes away in 1855, Marianne's 25 and promises her mom 
that she'll never leave her father at all. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, a little bit of pressure. Just a, just a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So real quick. Episode eight, I covered Beatrix Potter, who did Peter Rabbit. Mm-hmm. And um, like into her adulthood, she was close with her parents, but like more because she had to be and not a social obligation because she was kind of growing up at the same time. Uh, but I think Marianne, she really did enjoy her, fa- her father's company and over the years acted more as like an assistant to him and his work in parliament. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So it like it worked out well. Like they really did compliment one another. Dad and daughter working together. Yeah, so when you, you hear that about the mom, you're like, oh, shit, that's a lot of pressure. But it was like, no, it actually, you know, it, it worked. Right. It was really great. I can't go on a family vacation with being like, I'm going to kill you guys. So, like, they go on a lot of family trips together. I mean, honestly, I'm the same way with my own family, so. Most people are, and maybe it did come up. So Marianne, her sister, and her dad, they did travel extensively in the summers, uh, and they went all across Europe. So before Marianne even sets off on her own, like by her early 20s, she's already a seasoned international traveler. Ah, to have that life. Yeah, they would go to Italy and they would go to Switzerland and they would go to France. Like they they hopped all over. Now in 1864, her sister marries and then it's just the 34-year-old Marianne and her father. A year later, he loses his seat in parliament, but that does give them a lot more freedom to travel. So they're able to kind of go past Europe and they go to Egypt and they go to Syria. I mean, they're really kind of extending those that vacation time. All the traveling that Marianne was able to do with her father and then later on on her own, all thanks to the massive colonization effort of the British Empire. So the British Empire at its peak controlled almost a quarter of the world's population at the time. Those fuckers need to be stopped. Okay, I get this. So today... Out of the almost 200 member states of the United Nations, the British have invaded all but 22. That's 171 countries that they fucked with. But for Marianne, at the time, I mean in the 1800s, that gave her plenty of holiday options. Holy shit. Yeah, I was like, shit. I I mean, I realized it was extensive, but not quite that much. Um, Now, come 1869, she's 39 years old. And her father passes away. No! Um, yeah. I mean, he's 69. They were at, they were at the Swiss Alps. It wasn't fair, feeling well. They came home. He passed. And given how close they were, it was really hard for Marianne. Afterwards, she described going into a kind of hibernation, saying, quote, I could not bear to talk of him or of anything else, and resolved to keep out of the way of all friends and relations. And she straight up, she's like, I'm leaving the house forever. And she did. She sold it, got rid of it, and started traveling. I was inspired a good part by a family friend, a Sir William Hooker. He's important as the first director of the Kew, which is an almost 300-acre botanical garden in London. It hosts the largest and most diverse bi- botanical and myco- my- Jesus, fuck. Mushrooms, mushroom collection in uh, the world. Fuck. Ma- spell it for me. It's my call, M Y C O L O G I C A L. Mycological? Mycological? Yes, that one. You had it. I can't say it, apparently. So, importantly for us, he oversaw the building of the Palm House, which is this really amazing, like cast iron and all glass greenhouse. Um, that's where all the tropical plants have been held. And that's where Marianne fell in love with all this super exotic flora. You know, seeing all the variety at the Palm House, Marianne said, quote, I long dreamt of going to some tropical country to paint its particular vegetation on the spot in natural abundant luxuriance. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, she's like, fuck England. It's drab as fuck. Let's get out of here. <laughs> Got nothing else to live for. I mean, after her father passes away and she comes into a shit ton of family money, like, that's exactly what she does. I wouldn't stay in the same place. No, and I mean, she grew up traveling everywhere, and she has the money and she has the means, so, I mean, why not? Right, 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 right. I, she doesn't, she's not invested in a traditional profession, because, I mean, women of her wealth, they're not expected to have jobs. Um, at this point, she's a spinster. What is she supposed to do? Exactly. I mean, especially because she's not married. She's not having babies. Like, that right there at her age is a really big deal. Frees up some time and energy. Oh, it, it definitely does. And she would not have been able to accomplish what she was doing if she had to deal with having kids and a husband. You know, sometimes I wonder how great it would be to, like, oh, I mean, not a lot of women would be in her situation, but to, like, 
be there and like only be expected to do certain things. And if I just went, nah, I'm good. You know what? I was thinking about that. And one thing I've learned just from the overall research for this podcast is that if you have enough money, mm-hmm. you can say fuck it and do whatever you want. I I don't have enough money. And then after the fact, society can be like, oh, they were so modern and they were so trailblazing and they were such a rebel. Hmm. They were just I mean, trying like, to no, live their life. They were just honestly like really self-focused and able to say fuck you to social conventions because they have a shit ton of money and that, that isolates them from repercussions that other people would have to face it's the truth it is yeah i I mean that's it's that applies very much in this case right i'll get to that kind of towards the end but with with all that wealth of hers so she was able to travel to 20 countries over 15 years stop that's amazing and she created over a thousand paintings of on all those trips like collectively of all those trips of flora Yep. Shit. I, I mean, a few landscapes, but it was all about the plants. And there were some animals that did creep in. I'd much prefer the animals, but whatever. A little harder to paint, but um, I mean, the amount of traveling she did in the Victorian era by a woman, that's a really big deal. Being a wealthy white woman it did give Marianne access, and letters of introduction acted as her in. Now, I'm familiar with them. I, they're still a thing. You can still find templates on them online. I've never needed one. Have what, you? What? I don't. I've never heard of those before. What the fuck are letters of introduction? They were a really big deal in the 18th and 19th century. Essentially, as a way of like vouching for someone socially. What? Yeah, like if someone was trying to be introduced to like a new group of people, especially if they were a little higher, like socially than them, that would be like they're in. <laughs> or if you're just like you're traveling to new areas and you have to be like oh no like i too come from a wealthy family like here's a way of proving it i can't believe that's a thing oh well i mean imagine you're in the like, let's say 1850s you can't call someone you can't email them you can't check their references like that's how you did it <sighs> especially if you're traveling internationally and someone just shows up and you're like how are you supposed to know if they're like legit your you know second cousin's child Oh, I guess. I was thinking more like meeting people at like a party and being like, yeah, you're cool, but where's your letter of introduction? Well, see, you wouldn't be at that party if you hadn't previously sent one. <sighs> to get you, well, yeah, see, you and I, we would not have done well with all those etiquette rules. Nah, not even close. We don't do well with etiquette rules now. <laughs> we really don't. <laughs> all right, so even though you and I... That's not a thing for us. It was for her. And funny enough, that's what got her hosted by the president of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant, when she was in D.C. I shit you not. Shut the fuck up. But, okay, (laughs) funny thing about that. Uh, Okay. A little history bit. So while America was going through our war of independence, the prime minister at the time in England was Uh a Frederick North. Okay. So her last name is North, and her dad is actually named Frederick North. Oh. They're not related. I mean, maybe second, thirds, whatever cousins, but they're not from like the same family. Mm-hmm. But I guess when she came with her letter of introduction, they just presumed she was the daughter of the prime minister what? from the 18th century. And afterwards, when she found out like what had actually happened, she was like, those fuckers like i'm not that old like wait for us to be stupid americans oh my god i mean but again fucking hosted by the president and also she got permission from the fucking emperor of japan when she was there to sketch in kyoto which at the time sketch in a city it was off limits to europeans why i mean japan had very much isolation like tendencies i mean I, i that's a whole different thing. Um, but yeah, she was able she was able to maneuver special permission to be able to go in for her botanical drawings and illustrations and paintings. Holy shit. Yeah. Uh, so letters of introduction don't seem so silly now. That was like her in and facilitated her to getting to these like really rugged, isolated spots of the country. And that's what she was really focused on. Huh. 
Yeah, because she wanted to see the plants. So her travels took her to North America, South America, the Caribbean, Europe, Africa, the Middle East, India, Sri Lanka, Southeast Asia, and on the recommendation of another family friend, Charles Darwin, Australia, and New Zealand. Do you know her favorite plant to draw? I'm not sure. I did start reading her autobiography, but I'll admit I did not have the time to commit to almost 400 pages. That sounds awful. I mean, I'm sure it's interesting. I just, I, I haven't been able to block out time for it. So I don't know if she actually mentions it, but that's a good question because no one in my research, that didn't come up at all. She did a lot of flowers. She's a flower lady. Proportionally, her her paintings are primarily flowers, but not exclusively. Okay. But yeah, family friend, Charles Darwin. They would just write letters back and forth. She would send him work. He said of her work in a letter, quote, It was extremely kind of you to call upon, with your considerable vividness, scenes in various countries that I have seen. And it is no small pleasure, but my mind in this respect must be a a barren waste compared with your mind. I remain, dear Miss North, yours, truly obligated, Charles Darwin. Oh my god. That's super sweet. Yeah, I mean, we had a bag of compliment by, by Charles Darwin. I mean, Marianne... Even though she wasn't formally educated, like, she wasn't fucking around with her work. You know, she traveled seriously focusing on documenting the flora and fauna of an area. And that took her to some really extreme areas. She would hike out miles to these remote areas, often in the tropics, with her painting equipment in tow. All in a fucking Victorian dress. Ha! Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you gotta look good, right? (sighs) So in a lot of ways, she's, like, defying social convention. But wearing a pair of pants? That's way too much. (laughs) she's doing this shit like in a dress when she has to worry about fucking python snakes i just think it's pretty crazy i it was very rough it was very dangerous traveling besides the transportation issue of getting to a remote area there were language barriers lack of doctors and disease to deal with and and she did deal with she picked up a few illnesses and broken bones along the way Mm -hmm. but i mean despite all that marianne was a really prolific badass making oil paintings of what she saw uh, and this is where she really departs from a traditional scientific illustrator, uh, more into like a natural fine artist. So in 1867, she's 37, and she took lessons from a artist, Robert Hawker Dowling. And from him, she learned oil painting and absolutely fell in love with it. Prior to that, she'd been using watercolors, which is traditionally what natural illustrators had used watercolors would not have lasted the voyage home aren't oils a pain in the ass they can be but for these really humid uh environments she was in Mm -hmm. having really thick oils that took a while to dry that actually they held up much better getting them home whereas the watercolors would have been way too delicate and all that that humidity would have really fucked with them and the paper okay yeah so even though they took longer to dry on location, it, it worked out better for her. And because of that, pretty much all her work remains to this day. Like, it's pretty well preserved. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I mean, during her travels, she averaged over 60 paintings a year. Holy, what? I mean, it's not like these are small either. Uh, how many, okay, just so I'm aware, how many paintings do you do usually in a year? Yo, I have been working on a three foot by three foot painting for over a year and a half now. I know. That's what I'm used to. So I'm curious to see like what her stuff looks like because yours is so like realistic and like so much attention to detail. And I kind of want to know what kind like I want to see it. Hers are very, they're very vibrant. They do capture a good bit of detail and it's pretty impressive. I'm not sure if she would hike out to a location. I mean, given the terrain Mm -hmm. over various days or if she would just paint it over one day but i think you know she really knew she she had to throw herself into the moment and she had to get shit done okay yeah yeah yeah. so she could move on and go to the next area that's fair i think she was someone she was always thinking about her next trip where she was going next the next plant that she really wanted to see okay now here's my next question she wasn't discovering these plants she was just painting them so somebody already found them and named them right Oh, no, she she discovered a few, too. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, we'll get to that later. All right. Yeah. See? I mean, she might not be a formally trained scientist, but she very much has a scientific approach to these things and documenting them. Maria Sevilla wasn't, uh, like, a formal scientist either. She was basically, she was a painter. She was an artist. Mm-hmm. But she had found her way, and she had founded so many different ones that, like, she's she's held up in both camps 
And that's why you just as easily could have done Marianne North. Fair. I mean, they, they're they're both very much 50-50 in both the arts and the science for this one, which has been fun. Fun to kind of branch out a little bit on my end. <laughs> now, for all the gazillion paintings she was doing in a year, mm-hmm. they're not traditional scientific illustrations. And those usually, like, solely depict an object on a, on a white background. Right. Marianne painted the entire scene in really vivid color. And that puts them a little bit more in the fine arts camp. Huh. But it also... It's funny because that also gives them a lot more scientific feedback about the plant than if it had just been done traditionally. Right. Because of the environment that was painted with it. Yeah. And she would do the animals too. And, you know, you'd see the back landscape. So you completely got a feel for where you could find this plant. Right. Uh, I mean, it makes it fun because then, I mean, you can still hike out to those areas and you can look for them and you know what to look for based on her paintings rather than just like the singular plant. And you're like, great. Uh is it up in the trees? Is it down low? <laughs> like, what? you know, when you, you, you need a little bit more to put some context into it. Right. Um, but one thing that I think is kind of funny is that some people are a bit assholes. And they're like, her her paintings, they're too vibrant. They're too colorful. <laughs> what does that even mean? I mean, this is a period before color photography. You know, black and white is very much a thing in the newsprint and everything. But, like, a way to be an asshole to be like, your paintings are too accurate and colorful like people are always gonna bitch about something something anything anything to make you feel super small and i think especially for an english audience they might have been very vibrant um because these are a majority of them are tropical plants they're meant to be vibrant i mean that's what she's going out looking for and like i mentioned i mean she she discovered at least for westerners a few new types of plants And, and one of them was a tropical pitcher that was named after her a tropical what a, like a pitcher, like a fly eating. Plant. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it's shaped like a like a pitcher. Interesting. And the 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 animals, the, the little insects, can like climb up the side of it, and then they fall in. Huh. And then on the inside, okay. it's got like a a sweetened digestive enzyme that breaks them down. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Fun stuff. Named one after her. Fancy. Yeah, that one's found out in Borneo. So she's since had a genus named after her and a few various plant species named in her honor. Nice. Yeah, I, they're really, they're wonderful paintings. They're so bright and colorful and they, they really give you just an amazing glimpse of this unspoiled, usually tropical like landscapes. Right. And when she did return to London, people loved seeing them. And after a trip to India, she got so tired of people asking to see them. She set up a public display in a gallery for two months. <laughs> if you want it, you can go here. Pretty much, because everyone just wanted to come to her house. And she was like, oh, fuck me. She was a little bit on the introvert side. And that went so well that it got her thinking about, like, a permanent home for all her artwork. And where was that permanent home? Oh, we'll get to that. Now, the entire time she's traveling, she's not really concerned about gallery representation or selling her art. She's got all the money she needs. And this work, it really is primarily for herself first. It's really satisfying her desire to paint and to see exotic plants. Anything that comes after is a bit of a bonus. Right. But as she's between traveling, she does arrange with the head honcho of the Kew Garden, the Sir William Hooker, to create a gallery open to the public in the gardens. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, again, it's all about, you know, so they had a really well to do architect do it. And and she paid for it. She completely covered it out of pocket. I mean, she has the money. She did. So they were like, shit, why not? Yeah. And what she really wanted was a building um, open to the public. People could come, enjoy coffee and tea, and look at all the artwork she did. And it houses over 800 of her paintings. Holy shit. Oh, my God. You guys really need to see pictures. I saw a great video of it, and it was amazing to watch as the camera, like, walked into the room because I had no idea what to expect. It's a two-story building, and the second story is all windows, so you have great light. And on the first floor, because it's all open, every single inch of the wall space is covered in her paintings. So link in the show notes? Oh, for sure. (laughs) There's no gap. Like, every painting fits together like a puzzle piece. She spent over a year, like, figuring out the layout because everything's grouped by country. And in some cases, to get them to fit together, um, she had to extend the painting a bit. Oh, my God. So on some of them, it's very subtle, but you can see, like, she added, like, an extra inch to the bottom. Oh, my God. So that way, when it was framed, everything would fit perfectly together. That's cool. Yeah. And, I mean, all these paintings... 
They vary from like a few square inches to up to 15 by 40 inches. That's like about three feet? About, yeah. So they're quite long. Very, but they were, she usually did very tall paintings to capture, you know, like the more elongated plants. Right. So I mean, we've got a shit ton of plants and flowers, but there's also birds and insects. And she worked in like other animals too. Now, eventually the hard conditions that Marianne put herself, they did start to catch up. Oh, no. Not tuberculosis, right? No, there's no fucking tuberculosis in my story at all. Okay. Yeah, we're good. By the time she travels to Chile at the age of 54 in 1884, her health is not the best. She's been going deaf. She's dealing with anxiety and nervousness over not being able to paint faster. And upon returning to England, she settles down. She doesn't die until six years later. Ha! Six years of retirement. Well earned. I mean, she's fucking hustling hard. So in the meanwhile, she oversees the opening of her gallery, the Marianne North Gallery. Uh, She settles into keeping up her own garden. She wrote her autobiography, Recollections of a Happy Life. Very cool. And her her sister helped edit it and put it together. And it's not until 1890, at the age of 59, that she passes away. Oh. Yeah. Liver disease. Liver disease. Yeah. Oh. It's got to be something, right? I know. Well, I mean, especially given how physically demanding her work was. Right. It's and all the all the bugs she caught. I mean, at the time you can't get vaccination, so she's got to worry about malaria. She's got to worry about smallpox. She's literally just um, building a natural immunity, hoping she can. Hoping. And a lot of the harder aspects of her journeys, because she kept diaries as she was traveling, she really glosses over. So it's kind of hard to know just how much things might have affected her, because that's not what she was focused on talking about at all. Right. Right. Now, traditionally, painting flowers, very much women's work. Right. What is not women's work is crossing continents and traveling by steamboat and then ox cart and then hand-carved canoe, all in order to traverse jungles and swamps and cliffs and mountains in order to paint those said flowers. So she's the badass. Oh, she's such a fucking badass. (laughs) And in some cases, like, there's people that have gone out since looking for the same plants to experience what she went through. And um, in one case... You're you're marching 15 miles in the jungles of Borneo. That's that's amazing. Up into the mountains in order to find one particular area where a certain plant grows. And she did this all in a dress. Yeah, in the fucking 1800s. I imagine it was an absolute nightmare, but she did it. And she handled it all in a very matter-of-fact way. Uh, I mean, for her, I'm sure what she did with her life was exactly how it was supposed to go you know, functioning completely outside of social expectations at the time for women. And like we were talking about, like I've learned if you've had enough money in this podcast, you can essentially do whatever the fuck you want. And then after the fact, you know, be considered a pioneer for doing so. Pretty fucking awesome. Yeah. And like I said, I haven't entirely read her autobiography, so I can't 100% say what view she might have had or not on feminism. But we do know as a child, she was friends with a painter and a future leader in England suffrage movement, a Barbara Bonichon. But she was never involved in that herself. I mean, to be fair, she was out of the country for a good many years. I think part of it is because she had so much wealth, it really insulated her from a lot of the sexist issues women at home were dealing with. But all of Marion's traveling and her profession, it really combated sexist expectations of women for the era. So for me, because of her work, you know, scientists gained a better understanding of botany. And her work today is still relevant in the documentation and the art of scientific illustration. So Marianne said, fuck it, I'll do what I want. And that kind of determination is really what made me choose her for this episode. I mean, I'm someone, I can very much have a single-minded focus, and that's exactly how she was. And uh, fun fact, for a mere 500 pounds, we can sponsor one of her paintings at the gallery. What? Yeah, so... Fundraising efforts can be directed to info at myfavoritefeminist.com. We can raise money and we can pick a painting. And for 10 years, we'll be the official sponsor of that painting. That's so fucking cool. Yeah, we literally have hundreds to choose from if we wanted to. Oh, that's so cool. That's a, that's a life goal right there. And they, like, in the in the gallery, mm-hmm. they'll officially put who's sponsoring the painting. Can what? you imagine? My favorite feminist, yeah. Ah, oh, all right, we got to do this. So I really want to make that happen at some point. <laughs> Also, fun fact, her gallery is currently the longest-running solo exhibition space for a female artist, like, permanent solo show. That is crazy. Which is kind of sad. And it's it's the only permanent female solo show of a woman in the UK. Well, we'll work on making more of those. Yeah. But yeah, that's it. That's why she's my favorite feminist. And for $500, 
pounds. So a little bit more than USD. My favorite feminist can officially sponsor a painting. <laughs> Let us know. We'll get it done. So tell me about some eyeballs. Yeah, absolutely. Specifically a woman who dedicated her life to working with eyeballs. I feel like in another life, I would have potentially been a surgeon. But the idea of being like like an eye doctor, like an eye surgeon, is fucking terrifying. Yeah. Oh, my God. There's so little space to work with. You have to be super precise. And you just, oh, awful. Awful. I, I mean, in any surgery, you want to be like that. But I feel like, if, I mean, if you're a smidge off with someone's eyeball, like, they're fucked. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's bad. Uh, this lady, she knew what she was doing. Tell me about your ophthalmologist. Okay. So... Her name was Patricia Bath. She was an ophthalmologist, an inventor, and an activist. She was born November 4th in 1942 in Harlem, New York, to a Rupert and a Gladys Bath. So dad was an immigrant from Trinidad with a bunch of different jobs. So he was a columnist, a fisherman, first black man to work for the New York City subway as a motorman. So he was driving the trains around. Mom stayed home to take care of her and her brother. And they both went, I don't know, I don't know the brother's name to save my life, but... They both went to Charles Evans Hughes High School and Bath, and they were both like this, but Bath was uh, really talented in science, and her teacher zeroed in on her and pushed her to go into scientific research, and she was even the editor of the school science paper. Because of the support of her teachers, she had inspiration to apply for a scholarship from the National Science Foundation. So still in high school, she found herself at Yeshiva University and Harlem Hospital Center studying cancer, nutrition, and stress. And there she developed a mathematical equation for predicting cancer cell growth. So at 16 years old, the head of the research project, Robert O. Bernard, incorporated her findings into a paper he presented at an international conference in D.C. in 1960 with her name included. Holy shit, that's such a big deal. Uh, yeah. Six, that's amazing. 16 fucking years old, she was still in high school. 1960, she also got a merit award for Mademoiselle magazine that year for the work that she did for Harlem Hospital Center and Yeshiva University. So, like, nice. she's not only nationally, like, recognized with that magazine, people knowing her name, but internationally because the conference was an international one. So, she's, her name's, like, blown up in spaces right needless to say she graduated high school in about two and a half years and then headed straight into college at hunter college to study chemistry and physics she graduated in 1964 with a bachelor's in chemistry and then zoomed straight into medical school at howard university in washington dc so do you still have that master list with you oh for sure i do okay uh what's that head count at howard university okay that master list does not include who went to Howard University, but we have episode 10, uh, Lewis Jones, she went there. Uh, episode 4, Elizabeth Catlett, she went there. Um, and then episode 3, was that Mammy Phillips Clark? I believe so. She went there too. Yeah. So we got a bunch of ladies killing it. Oh, we do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought I thought it was like a bunch of them too. Uh, so I just thought that was cool. The link, it just it keeps circling back to Howard University. So while she's in college, she co-founded the Student National Medical Association and became its first woman president in 1965. And then in 1967, she was awarded a summer fellowship to do research in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, from the Children's Bureau. And somehow, after that, she still found time to coordinate her and her fellow med students to do some volunteer medical services at Resurrection City for the Poor People's Campaign of 1968. I'm assuming we need historical context for this. I always appreciate some. Yeah. So real quick, let me just get that in there. This is Milena's miscellaneous, my favorite feminist fact. It's, but it's not miscellaneous because this shit's relevant. It's three sentences long, I think, I'm pretty sure. So they're long sentences, but they're, it's pretty short. So, 1967, Martin Luther King uh, lays out a plan to have people living in poverty at the time of all races, colors, and creeds go to the mall in D.C., Washington, D.C., set up camp there, and stay there as a sit-in protest for the United States government to do something about the systematic poverty that was set in place. 1967. Mm -hmm. So, of course, Dr. King doesn't make it to the mall because on April 4th, 1968, he's assassinated, and his death stirs up some feels in the country. 
I mean, obviously. So in his honor, May 21st, 1968, 3,000 people set up their homes on the National Mall. The town is called Resurrection City. It had its own zip code, and it existed for 11 weeks. I didn't realize it went on that long. I mean, I, I know of it, but... I didn't know of it. I didn't it. realize it was... Yeah, 11 weeks. And it was enormous. Um, so she went out there, and she got her fellow med students to go out and give, like, medical assistance to those who lived in Resurrection mm-hmm. City, which was really cool. So she graduated with her MD in 1968 and came home to New York City as an intern at Harlem Hospital. Breezed through that, then tackled a fellowship in ophthalmology at Columbia University from 1969 to 1970, right? So at this time, Patricia is starting to notice some things about the two hospitals she had experienced at, so between Harlem and Columbia, right? Specifically, she's starting to notice things about her patients, So at Harlem, nearly half of her patients were blind or visually impaired. At Columbia, the number there was much, much lower. So what was the difference, right? It was actually racial. So most of her patients at Harlem were African-American, and most of the patients at Columbia were Caucasian. The blindness rate of the patients at Harlem were doubled compared to the individuals at Columbia. As a reaction to this sudden realization, Patricia starts to establish something called community ophthalmology and brought eye surgery services to Harlem Hospital. Um, So do you remember, I'm sure you do, because it was the bane of my existence, but not for the reasons I'm about to tell you, for different kinds of reasons. Uh, The community veterinary clinic I used to work at that did low-cost preventative services and surgeries. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm not going to say the name because they do really great work. Management is just shit. So that's a whole... That's usually how it goes. Yeah, so that's that's a whole other thing. But the work that I did there was pretty... I, I enjoyed it. The reason I enjoyed it was because it targets communities that don't have access to veterinary care or know anything about the needs of their animals, like medically. So my job wasn't just to sedate and monitor during surgery. As a surgery technician, a very large part of my job was public health related. So I had to teach individuals about their animals' needs, and I was trained to do so with very little judgment, which helped facilitate client compliance and a better overall community health. So... I am a huge advocate for public health because the more people know, the more people will understand, and the more people will comply. And that's exactly what the deal was with her. Mm-hmm. So she targeted Harlem for her community ophthalmology. Um, so a place with very little knowledge of medical needs, let alone ophthalmological needs, in order to promote a healthier community overall. Her publications would help the medical community understand the correlation between African Americans' poverty and their higher likelihood of having visual impairment. Now, I can think of two things that might contribute to that. But is there anything in particular that led to those higher rates? Um, Specifically because the people there didn't know how to take care of their eyes. They never got their eyes checked. And because they never got their eyes checked, they never caught things early. If you don't catch things early, it's going to come back to bite you in the ass. Simple as that. And these people, they had no idea. They, they're too busy like trying to like live their lives and take care of their families. They don't really pay attention to themselves or their own eyes. They just let it go. Mm-hmm. That was her activism for her to like set movement in place in communities for her to for them to realize that like you have to take care of yourself, even your eyeballs, because they're not going to last forever. Okay. After this, she keeps going, and she becomes the first African American resident at New York University in 1973. 1974, she finishes a fellowship in corneal and keratoprothesis surgery. So basically, it's a surgical procedure where a diseased cornea is replaced with an artificial cornea. Ugh, technology is amazing. I know. That's so wild. It's crazy. And somewhere in there, she got married and had a daughter, but I don't really know much about that. <laughs> she <laughs> there was work to be done. She was too busy removing corneas and putting fake ones in. It's fine. 1975, she moves to L.A. to become an assistant professor of surgery at ophthalmology at UCLA. So University of California of L.A. And there she was, the first African-American woman surgeon and the UCLA Medical Center and the first woman faculty member at the UCLA Jules Stein Institute, I Institute. So she is the first. She's adding firsts onto her list. Just keeps mm-hmm. going. 1976, she co-founded the American Institute for the Prevention of Blindness. So... The, like, mission was to protect, preserve, and restore the gift of sight. So the goal was equal opportunity care for everyone, regardless of what was going on with them. Mm-hmm. 
1983, she keeps working in 1976, being awesome, working at the American Institute. In 1983, she was named chair of the ophthalmology residency training program at UCLA. So she co-founded the training program, and she was the first woman in the U.S. to become a chair in medical training program. 1988, she adds the title of inventor onto her CV. So not only is she a doctor, not only is she a surgeon, not only is she an educator, she's an inventor. So basically, two years before this, she finds herself in Europe doing research at the Rothschild Eye Institute in Paris and then at the Laser Medical Center in Berlin. She gets to experiment with some new tools, specifically the uh, laser photoblasion. So any blasion medically is the removal. So the process of removing things with a tiny laser is what she was doing. Okay. Um, there's like a, in my field is like testicular ablation where you have to remove the like, <laughs> oh, sorry, the scrotal ablation. <laughs> so when you neuter a dog and like, yeah, it's like the, the testicles are gone, but like the scrotum is either so large or so inflamed that you have to remove that too. That's. <laughs> okay. Just laser those little suckers just, off. Well, or... I mean, it wasn't. No, a, they're not so little. Specifically, the scrotum isn't lasered off. It's scalpeled off. But in her case, that ablation was through a laser. With lasers. Yeah. So she coins the term laser phaco, which is short for a specific ophthalmological surgery using the process called photoablative cataract surgery. Um, and her specific invention, the one that she made, is called the laser phaco probe, and it was finished in 1981. So it's a surgical tool that uses a laser to disintegrate cataracts. Cataracts, they develop in lenses, and they can lead to blindness if they're left untreated. So after the cataract is destroyed, which you need to do, a surgeon can then go in and remove the patient's lens and insert a replacement instead. This invention made the surgery and process faster, safer, more accurate, and less invasive. So those are all really important when you have something like under anesthesia and basically in your hands. Like the safer and it, it is. it wasn't? What's up? Being done. It wasn't being done with lasers beforehand? I mean, not quite as precise as hers. No. Okay. I mean, shit. Especially when it comes to the eyeballs. Yeah. I'm very much okay with that. All on board. So her first patent was uh, 1988. And she spends the remainder of her career working tirelessly to improve it on her invention, obtaining four patents in the U.S. that surrounded themselves around the laser FACO, as well as getting patents in, like, other countries. So Japan, Canada, several countries in Europe. Mm -hmm. So after that, she passed away May 30th of this year, 2019, due to cancer complications, age 76. She was basically elected to the Hunter College Hall of Fame in 1988, Howard University it was basically named for a pioneer in academic medicine in 1983. She was the first woman to be elected to the UCLA Medical Center's honorary medical staff. Um, there's a whole list of goodies, as always, for her. I didn't realize how quick that was. I like, like, that's still a lot. I mean, she was fucking hustling. Yeah, there was, like, no end this to it. This was a very, very ambitious woman. Yeah, she, like, did not stop. She's like, okay, that's cool. Next. It was crazy. All right, well, this episode we've got plants and eyeballs. Plants and eyeballs. Yeah, which reminds me, I actually, I need to schedule my annual eye appointment. Yeah, I technically. I've been putting it off. I'm like, next payday. Next payday. I th Payday after that, I'll finally schedule it. I think I'm getting blinder. Like, I should probably get some, uh, what's that, what's that, uh, the laser? LASIK Yeah, I, need, I should probably get LASIK. You know what? If I wasn't a visual artist, I would consider it. And I know it's gotten really good over the years, but any chance of a side effect for me, it's just, it's not fucking worth it. That's my livelihood. That's fair. Yeah. All right. Well. As always, if you guys have made it this far, you guys are really wonderful. We really do appreciate it. Mm -hmm. You keep coming back. I don't know why. I think it's cool. I don't know why. I mean, uh, obviously, we have some great facts, Megan, okay? And people like to hear our voices, and they like to hear about these amazing women, and... That's right. 
I don't I don't know where I'm going from here. I am very confused as to why people keep coming back. But thank you. <laughs> uh. As always, if you guys have made it this far, you guys are really awesome. We really appreciate it. Um, and if people want to see show notes of some of the paintings and the scientists that we've talked about and to read the not depressing autobiography of Marianne North, where can they go, Milena? Where can they see more? So we have a website. It's called myfavoritefeminist.com. We're on Facebook and Instagram under My Favorite Feminist. And if you want to hear us, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, TuneIn, or Stitcher. And if you're listening on iTunes, you should let us know. If you were going to go anywhere to document the wildlife or the flowers or the plants or anything like that, where would you go? Why? We want to know where you want to go. Megan, where would you go? You know what? Right now, I would go explore the vast wilds of China, specifically somewhere wild and crazy where I can get some really good soupy dumplings. Okay, all I can think about is the wild hamsters. (laughs) Roaming in herds across the savannah and then across the plains of China. (laughs) They gotta come from somewhere, Megan. Yeah, where would you go? Where would you go exploring? I'd probably find myself in like... The rainforests of South America. Or, ooh, Madagascar. They have a bunch of primates. That'd be pretty wild. New Zealand would be pretty cool to travel Mm -hmm. to. Like somewhere down there where you get, like, a lot of really crazy creatures. I'm not a big, like, plant person, but the animals, right up my alley. Oh, I feel like I'd be a weirdo and I would really focus in on the insects. You're always a weirdo. doesn't matter. You're the weirdo that likes insects, the weirdo that watches Red Dwarf. I feel personally insulted. That's all right. I feel like not many people really know about Red Dwarf. <laughs> but now all of you guys do. Whether or not you want to. On that note, as always, we really appreciate it, guys. So until next time. Bye. Come on, 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 come